Um, so it's great to see you all, and um, it's great to be here, actually, um, um, because uh, some of you will know that uh, certainly this time last year, maybe six months ago, I couldn't have done this um, because of a period of extended ill health. Um, but thankfully, uh, I'm on the up, and I uh, just want to say all of you who have prayed for me, uh, who have asked after me, um, that has meant a great deal to both Christine uh, and me, so thank you very much. Um, big thank you to everybody who's participated in the uh, service this morning, especially again to, uh, to Gary for, uh, for giving us that uh, song. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth, may the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Amen. Sounds a wee bit echoey to me. No? Maybe just me. Um, We're going to be looking at uh, Romans chapter 6 today. So uh, you might want to get your pew Bible. We'll be looking at one or two other passages. If you feel like it, you can can follow along as we look at one or two uh, bits and pieces along uh, the way. Uh, Paul wrote his letter to the Christians in Rome about 20 years after Jesus' resurrection and death, uh, death and resurrection. By that time, there were several hundred believers in Rome, many of whom had come to faith in Jesus from a Jewish background. They met in more than a dozen house churches and were led by a variety of both women and men, and you can read about that in Romans uh, chapter 16. The believers in Rome came from the lower echelons of society. They were artisans, they were laborers, they were homeless people, they were slaves, all together in these little house churches. They were people whose lives, like those of the poor everywhere, were very uncertain. They were full of danger. We read about that in chapter 8, actually. If you remember, Paul talks to them about tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, the sword. When we read those things in Romans 8, we think it's kind of hyperbole. It's, it's rhetoric. But to Paul's readers, they represented the very real dangers of life on the economic edge. When you lived in unsanitary, crowded tenements with open fires for cooking, no sewers, no running water, the danger of getting on the wrong side of a totalitarian military regime, these were very real dangers. So the communities of these little, um, the, uh, little communities of these Roman believers were hugely important to them. In the midst of a very uncertain, unjust world, they were centers of love and mutual support and caring in a host of practical ways. They were a foretaste, if you like, of the loving, just, fair kingdom to come, where, if you remember Luke's words, the mighty would be brought down from their thrones, the humble exalted, the hungry filled with good things, and the rich sent empty away. Now, Paul had never been to Rome, but he was keen to go there. He wanted to start a new phase of his ministry in the east of the empire into Spain. And he wanted to use Rome as a base. So he wanted to introduce himself to the Romans, introduce his understanding of the gospel to them. And he wanted to encourage them to be united so that they could provide a strong support for this major new undertaking. So in this long letter, he goes over the basis for the Romans' unity. Although they're divided along ethnic lines, there was Jews and Gentiles, they are all, Paul says, in the same boat. First of all, in their unjust lifestyles, all have sinned, he says, and then in the way that God has put them right by God's action in the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
Paul's at pains on the one hand to point out the inadequacy of the Jewish Torah for the Jewish believers uh, in Rome, but on the other hand, he tells off the Gentile believers for looking down their noses at the Jewish Christians. And he's got quite a lot to say about how a united Roman church would live together peacefully as brothers and sisters, peacefully with everyone around, not engaging in violence or revenge, and living lives of harmony and peace and joy and hope. So we've got a very fulsome letter from Paul in Romans. It covers a lot of material. It's a letter that's directed at the situation of of Roman believers in the middle of the first century. But nevertheless, of course, it's a letter that has a great deal to say to us as well. Verses that we read in chapter 6 come after Paul has argued very clearly in in these earlier chapters about the basis for the Romans' unity. Everybody, no matter what their pedigree, is in desperate need of salvation by God, and everybody has been put right, justified, on the same basis through faith in Christ. The result of this is that Roman believers now live in a completely new realm. Paul describes this in a number of ways. In chapter 5, he compares two ages. There's the age of Adam, and there's the age of Christ. Believers have been transported from this age of Adam, which is characterized by condemnation, sin, death, and have now been brought to live in the age of Christ, which is characterized by obedience, justice, and life. In chapter 8, he goes on to describe this change in another way. On the one hand, there's the life of the flesh, again characterized by sin, condemnation, and death. And then there's the life of the spirit, characterized by life and peace. Jesus' followers, Paul says categorically in chapter 8, are not in the flesh. They are in the realm of the Spirit. Now, this is quite fundamental for us to grasp because it's, it's pretty central to the way that Paul thinks. We see it again and again in his letters. In Colossians, he talks about believers being transported from the kingdom of darkness and put into the kingdom of his dear Son. In Ephesians, he says that believers once walked according to the course of the world, but now they're alive to Christ. In Galatians, he says believers have crucified the flesh. They are crucified to the world. And in the Corinthian letter, you'll remember this, he says quite starkly, if anyone is in Christ, she or he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. We cannot underestimate the immensity of what Paul thinks about the effect of Jesus dying and rising again. For Paul, something quite dramatic has happened to Jesus' followers, and the resurrection sits at the heart of it. Amazingly, Christ is risen. And for Paul, we believers are in Christ. So therefore, it follows that we too are risen. We share in his risen life. If that's the case, things have changed. We don't belong to the old age of Adam. We live in a new realm where the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead empowers us. We live in a new kingdom, not one where we're subject to old habits, disempowering lifestyles, living selfishly, uncaring about justice and peace, 
but rather we live in the kingdom of Jesus, where we exemplify the characteristics of Jesus' very own life, both individually and together. Love, peace, justice, joy. As Paul says in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God is justice, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit. So in Romans chapter 6, having shown how believers are united in their need and in their means of salvation, and having introduced this familiar theme of his of transformation in chapter 5, Paul goes on to expand this in another way here in chapter 6. Not now Adam Christ, or flesh, spirit, or kingdom of darkness, kingdom of Jesus. Now it's slavery to injustice versus slavery to justice. Paul takes us through the logic of his thinking in the early part of the chapter, which Chris read for us. By baptism, we have been incorporated into Christ. For Paul, this is real. This is actual. This is the start of the transformation. We're incorporated into Christ. So with Christ, we have died. And so with Christ, we are raised. Our old self has been crucified, just as Christ was crucified. And as Christ now lives, so we too have been raised to newness of life. Ultimately, of course, that will end in our actual bodily resurrection. But for now, something actual and tangible has happened. Actually, something quite wondrous has happened. There is a new creation. All things have become new. Life is different. Transformation has begun. Now, I think some of us uh, modern Christians are a wee bit afraid of this sort of incautious talk by Paul. Perhaps we've been burnt off by an experience of a triumphalist version of Christianity, which is perhaps um, unrealistic about the state of the world. Or maybe we're terribly anxious that somebody might think that we think we're better than anybody else. Or maybe we've taken some verses from Romans 7, which talk about the difficulty that humans have in doing the right thing, and we've blown them out of all proportion to the rest of the New Testament. Now, of course, nobody finds a presumptuous, holier-than-thou attitude attractive. But let us not be afraid of the explosive, world-changing, life-changing truth of the New Testament, that God has broken into his world in the person of Christ. The entire axis of the universe has shifted. The result of that is many things, but at the heart of it is, for those of us who are in Christ, our lives have been fundamentally touched and changed. Being tentative about that really is to deny the depth and the breadth and the splendor of what Christ has done for us. Reformer Martin Luther on this subject said that Christ had died For this very purpose, that the Holy Spirit should change our old Adam into a new man, and that we are to begin this change and increase in this new life here. We're united to Christ. Our old lives are over. Dead is dead. Who remembers the Monty Python parrot sketch? Anybody old enough? Okay, there's there's a few people who remember that. So you remember the parrot, you know, bang, bang, bang. Is the parrot dead or is it just stunned? Was it dead 
Yes, it was dead. It wasn't just stunned. Our old lives, as far as Paul is concerned, are not just stunned. They are dead. Something new has taken its place. Let us not underestimate the enormity of what God has done for us. No longer in Adam's era, no longer in the flesh, no longer in the kingdom of darkness. It is a new era. It is a new day. It is a new creation. So what's the result of all of this? Well, Paul states the situation quite clearly for us in chapter 6. Christians are no longer to be enslaved to sin, verse 6. Sin will have no dominion over you, verse 14. You were once slaves of sin, verse 17. Now you're set free from sin, verse 22. Does that sort of language make you feel a bit uneasy? Do we wish Paul was a bit more measured? Took into account that, well, we're flawed. We're not up to much. We're only sinners saved by grace. And yet, this is what he says. This is what he says. Because of the epoch-shattering death and resurrection of Christ, things have changed. Paul uses here the metaphor of slavery, which the Romans were well aware of. Believers have changed master. Now we don't serve sin. Rather, verse 18, we are slaves of righteousness. What might that mean? We heard um, the Reverend Gary Davis uh, song earlier on from from Gary. A lot of Garys in this service. Uh, This song, Great Change, uh, he says, things I used to do, I don't do, do no more. Lies I used to tell, I don't do no more. Roads I used to go down, I don't go down no more. There's been a great change since I've been born. And the song, I think, captures the real impact on a life of the new birth. And to be sure this deliverance from sin affects us in the most personal aspects of our behavior. We should not minimize that. But I wonder, are the implications perhaps wider than that? Let's pause for a moment to think about this word, righteousness. It belongs to a family of words, uh, the, the word that's used in the New Testament belongs to a family of words which we can translate in English in two different ways. We can use the Anglo-Saxon right group of words, right, make right, righteous, all those words. Or we can use the, the Latin, just, justify, justice, justification. Those are all possible ways of translating what Paul says. They both mean effectively the same thing, but I think righteousness has has kind of come to have a lot of religious overtones, perhaps, and it, it maybe deflects us from the sense of the word that Paul was using. Perhaps better to translate the word, as some translations often do, as justice. We get the same word used in Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus says, blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Maybe better to translate that hunger and thirst after justice. So with that in mind, let's look particularly at verse 16, uh, verse 13 of Romans 6. Here's the NIV translation. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of wickedness. The word there, wickedness, uh, is translated in other, uh, put in other translations as, as unrighteousness. It's actually the opposite of the word 
Sorry, have we not been getting the... Oh, dear. Okay, never mind. Sorry about that, folks. Um, I, was, uh, I was blissfully unaware that, this, that what I was saying was not that you weren't seeing it. There's some good slides here as well. <laughs> Darn. But you kind of need them for this next bit, so glad I caught on. So here we are, this word, instrument of wickedness. That word is, un, is unrighteousness. It's ex- the exact opposite um, of this word righteousness here, translated wickedness in the, in the NIV. Oops. Now we're really struggling with the, the technology. <clears throat> Other translations um, say, don't offer your members to sin as an instrument of unrighteousness. Don't offer your members to sin as an instrument of unrighteousness. And do you let's kind of scratch your head and think, what is he talking about? What does he mean? Your members as instruments of unrighteousness. It's not really the sort of language we commonly use. So I can't help but feel that this translation is maybe not as clear as it could be. So if we think of this word unrighteousness here as the opposite of righteousness, and if we think we could maybe translate this word righteousness as justice, then what would the opposite of Righteousness, uh, what would the opposite of, of justice be? Sorry, injustice, yeah. So perhaps we could, we could change that to injustice. So that would make our text look a bit like this. Don't f- offer any part of yourself to sin as an instrument of injustice, but rather offer every part of yourself to God as an instrument of justice. <clears throat> now then we have this word instrument, Now, that's an interesting word because this word in Paul's day was more commonly used for what we would translate as a weapon. And that's the way, actually, the Common English Bible translates it, a weapon of injustice or justice. And in case you think I'm stretching a point here, Luther and Calvin both read the verse in this way as weapon. Paul, Calvin says, borrows a similitude from the military office when he calls our members weapons or arms. Christians, he says, ought to regard all their faculties to be weapons of the spiritual warfare. So now I think we're beginning to get a translation that perhaps is maybe more helpful and maybe quite exciting. Do not offer any part of yourself to sin as a weapon of injustice, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer every part of yourself to God as a weapon of justice. Now, instead of religious-sounding language that, well, I can imagine it coming out of the mouth of Sam the Eagle uh, and the Muppets, um, instead we have a text that actually I think is very exciting. Because of what God has done in Christ, we've been brought from death to life. That, I think, is the underlying logic. And because of this seismic shift, this change that's been affected in us, we are to live in a different world-changing way. Our previous lives in the kingdom of darkness were marked by self-centeredness, which contributed to the unfairness, the violence, the injustice in our world. We can't go on living in such a way, says Paul. We are to present ourselves to God rather than sin, and instead we are to be weapons of justice, 
Our new life in Christ makes us those who will strike blow after blow on the kingdom of darkness in the cause of justice. In Paul's scriptures, one of the things that God cares most about is justice. We remember Micah's words that God's requirement for his people was to do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with God. Psalm 99 tells us that God is a lover of justice. The Old Testament is shot through with this theme of God's love and justice and God's desire that through relationship with him, justice would come to God's world. And we remember too that Jesus, the bringer of the new covenant, shared this biblical vision of justice. Think of his inaugural sermon in Nazareth in Luke chapter 4. But Paul too stands very firmly in this biblical tradition of envisaging a new world of peace and justice, inaugurated by the death and resurrection of Christ. And for Paul, believers are now part of this new realm, a new community of peace and justice, where lives are no longer to be dominated by selfishness, but are to be put into the service of the new kingdom value of justice. We are to use our freedom in Christ to be weapons of justice in the world. What might that mean for us today? In our families, in our church community, in our workplace, in the marketplace, how can you and I be a weapon for justice? Think about your life, where you operate, at home, work, and social media. What ways are there that you can demonstrate the life, the love, the justice of God? Maybe in a work situation, it's simply by standing up against some casual sexism that you come across. Maybe it's being fair and equitable in your business dealings. Maybe you turn down a deal because you're not convinced about the ethics of the company that you have the opportunity to do business with. Maybe you decide to pay your workers more because you don't want to squeeze them for everything you get out of them. And as employees, maybe we work, we work diligently and give a fair return for what we're paid. There's a thousand ways in which we can all orientate our lives to be weapons of justice. And if there's some of the things I've mentioned you can't do and, and you can pray, prayer is a weapon for justice. Many of these things are simple, but often need courage to swim against the tide. You know your situation. You can think through what it means for you to be a weapon of justice in your sphere. But for all of us, let me ask one final important question this morning. How is your life connected to the lives of the poor in the world? In what ways are you seeking justice for the huge numbers of people in the world who are disadvantaged and suffer injustice and have so little. If we are really serious about our lives in Christ, our new lives, about presenting ourselves to God rather than sin, about being a weapon for justice rather than injustice, then we all need to find ways to get connected to those who are in need, either here at home or in the wider world. Because it's as we get connected and begin to feel their pain, and begin to understand their situation. As that happens, we begin to get some perspective on our own lives. And as we make a priority of finding ways to walk in solidarity with the marginalized and with the poor, 
we find where the real joy and satisfaction in life lies. So how is your life, how is my life connected to the lives of the poor? That's an important question for us to ask if we are to discover the glorious truth of what we've been talking about this morning, the new life that we've been brought into in Christ, a new kingdom, a new reality, a new creation, joy, peace, justice in the Holy Spirit. We have died. Our old lives of selfishness are over. There is a new creation. We are no longer slaves to injustice. Present yourselves, therefore, to God as weapons of justice.